Hey guys, before we dive into this week's episode, I've got a little offer for you. This year I launched my online studio, Mindful Moment, and I'd love for you to prioritize your own well-being and come and have a free trial. You'll get unlimited 24-hour access to my growing library of meditations, mindfulness techniques, breathwork, movement sessions, yoga classes, sound healing recordings, and more. Whether you've got two minutes or a full day, and whether you want to improve your sleep, feel calmer, or let go of damaging thought patterns, there are sessions there to support you. All from the comfort of your own home on your own timetable. Go to lilysilverton.com forward slash mindful hyphen moment to start your free seven day trial today. So ultimately death is probably just one day of our lives, hopefully, but maybe not at some faraway point. But I think the main thing is that it is inevitable. No one is immune to it. We're all going to go through it at some point, not just our own, but that of the people around us. Inevitably, we may have to arrange the funeral of someone that we care about. We will experience grief at some point in as many forms. And I think by being aware of death in all of its different forms, we can live more empowered lives. It's just a great reminder that life isn't infinite. It's going to end at some point. And that can really change the decisions that we're we're making today and the lives that we're living. Welcome to Priorities, the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach Lily Silverton, and each week, along with a roster of incredible guests, I'll be exploring how priorities inform and transform our lives, sharing mindset tips, strategies, and inspiration to help you prioritise your own life. We'll be covering what we think is important and unimportant, what we'd like to work on more, and the moments that changed our priorities and lives forever. I hope you enjoy My guests today are end-of-life doula Anna Lyons and progressive funeral director Louise Winters. The founders of Life, Death, Whatever, Anna and Louise have dedicated their lives to redesigning the dialogue around death and dying, and in the process, shifting society's ideas of life, living, illness, funerals and grief. They believe that death is a normal part of life, and that acknowledging and accepting that one day we will die is fundamental to living a full life. Their first book, we All Know How This Ends, was released last month. Welcome, Louise and Anna. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Great to be here. Lovely to have you both. How's your day been so far? Louise, how about you? What are you what's your day been like? Are you a routine kind of person? No, every day is different. Um, My schedule is different every single day. Funerals are quite unpredictable. Um, So today I wasn't at a funeral, so I I got to have quite a nice slow start um, to Monday morning, you know, just doing all the sort of household things like being able to take out the recycling and just get things in order for the rest of the week. So it was a good start to the week, helped by the beautiful sunshine outside. Mm -hmm. Makes such a difference. What about you, Emma? Um, I've I've had a very busy morning and I've literally just got home. So I left at 8.20 to drop my daughter at school and then I had appointments and meetings and I ran in about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> so the absolute antithesis. <laughs> well, hopefully this can be some relaxing time. <laughs> Let's move on to talking about your work because what you guys do, what both of you do, both independently and together is so fascinating and so needed and also so new in so many ways. Louise, how did you get into your line of work? 
So I work as a funeral director. Um, I own my own funeral service called Poetic Endings um, in London. And I'd never even been to a funeral until I was 26. So the first funeral I ever went to was my granddad's funeral. And it was there that I just had a whole load of questions and realizations over what we were doing at the funeral, um, how we were doing it, what the funeral directors were doing, um, why the crematorium was the way it was, why were there dusty plastic flowers, um, and, and why do we handle death this way in, in our current society? And I started exploring those questions and ended up leaving my job. Um, I had a much more, I guess, glamorous job before. I worked with brands, um, coming up with ideas for um, campaigns. Um, and I left all of that behind to go into the into the dismal trade, as it's sometimes called, um, and ended up becoming a funeral director and beginning to address some of those things that came up at my granddad's funeral about why things are being done this way and why is the funeral industry so outdated? Why do funeral homes look so horrible from the outside? Um, what is actually going on there? All, all of those things I've begun to address. And you said to me before that really your priorities shifted in that instant in terms of changing your career? Absolutely, yes. It, I think I was still um, doing my previous job when I started exploring death and it just became very uncomfortable. My previous job was so overwhelming. We, um, we were scaling the company. Um, so we were always having to write decks for investors or um, try and um, you know have big meetings with people to try and get new business or pitch ideas to the CEO of a big fashion brand that kind of thing was always going on so I was working till three in the morning most of the time of the time we were eating pizza in the office until late it was really full-on and the more that I was exploring death and funerals and getting really interested and curious about what was going on the more it just became I just could not spend a single moment of my life <laughs> continuing to do the job that I was doing it became really uncomfortable I was so aware that one day I was going to die and that how I spend my days really matters. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. And there was a really pivotal moment um, on the, I was commuting home one day on the train and I had the urge to write my resignation email. And I wrote it on my phone. And before I knew it, I'd pressed send and I'd resigned and that was it. It was over and I just launched myself into this new career because I think by looking at death, it makes us reassess everything about our lives and how we're living them. Absolutely. Anna, what about you? How did you get into your line of work? Oh, um, I, when I was 17, my best friend died. And um, I'd, never, I'd never really experienced a grief like it. I'd, my, a couple of my grandparents had died previously, but sort of nobody who was a part of my everyday, who was sort of intrinsic to my existence, had died. And I didn't really feel like there were any resources out there to help me cope or to help me navigate what I was feeling and what my other friends were feeling. Um, and that was it, really. I just decided from there that this is what I wanted to do. And it's, it's what I've done for the last 20 years. Was there a pathway to an end-of-life doula at that time, 20 years ago, or was it... Um, no, so I, I, just, I decided I would work, I wanted to work in end-of-life, 
Um, and I've done various different roles and trained in various different things that have sort of all been a part of it. Um, and then I read an article years and years ago, I think it must have been maybe eight or nine years ago, about an end-of-life doula. And I just thought, that's the job that I'm doing. I didn't realise that it actually had a name. And doula comes from the Greek word, which means servant. And birth doulas are something that, you know, are sort of properly embedded, I think, in our culture now. And, you know, people use them a lot. But people still hadn't really heard of -of end-of-life doulas. And, yeah, that was it, really. I decided that that was where I wanted to be and all of the things that I'd done, it felt like had led me there. Mm. So normally on this podcast, I run through with people their various priorities and, and we talk about them for a while. But I think maybe what's best with you guys today is that we talk about mainly your work and essentially why everyone should be prioritizing death a little bit more in their lives, which is having read your book seems to be one of the big messages and having known your work for a while. So Louise, why should we be prioritizing death? How can we be prioritizing death? Why are we so scared to do so? So ultimately death is probably just one day of our lives, hopefully, but maybe not at some faraway point. But I think the main thing is that it is inevitable. No one is immune to it. We're all going to go through it at some point, not just our own, but that of the people around us. Um, Inevitably, we may have to um, arrange the funeral of someone that we care about. Um, We will experience grief at some point in as many forms. And I think by being aware of death in all of its different forms, um, we can live more empowered lives it's just a great reminder that life isn't infinite it's going to end at some point um and that can really change the decisions that we're we're making today and the lives that we're living and as to why we don't like to talk about it i mean why would we it's you know life's great mystery why are we here if we don't have a set of religious beliefs to answer that question, then that's a really overwhelming thing to think about. Why are we here and why does this end and what happens next is one aspect of it, I think. Um, and as well, we don't want to think that the people that we we know and that we love are going to die and that one day we will live our lives without them. That's a really hard thing to imagine, never mind to talk about. So I totally understand why in society as a whole, we find it really difficult to have these conversations. Anna, have you seen any of those conversations change over your work over the last 20 years? I think there's more of a willingness to talk about it. But I also think that we inhabit a bit of a fishbowl. You know, we, the people that we follow on Twitter and Instagram are people that are happy to talk about it. It's only really when and if I come across people that don't work in the same field that I realise that there is still such a reticence. Um, but we sort of surround ourselves with people who who will happily talk about it. So it's really it's really difficult to kind of to tell. But I would say there's a lot more articles about grief. There's a lot more 
books we've noticed so we set up the we set up life death whatever about six years ago and when we started there were hardly any instagram accounts about grief or death and dying and now there are loads and loads and loads we can't keep up with how many there are so there's there's definitely an appetite for it there's definitely an audience there's definitely people out there who really want to open up the conversation now but I'm not sure how um, nationwide that is. Yeah, because we exist in such an echo chamber. Absolutely, yeah. How do you think, um, I think it's really interesting about social media because I um, obviously follow both of you, but I've also seen lots and lots of accounts and more of them, as you say, popping up to um, for people to express their thoughts and feelings and relationship around bereavement and grief. And I think what um, also, as well as sort of people popping up doing kind of making accounts like ours, there's quite a lot of personal accounts where people are exploring their own grief, which I think is really interesting too, that they're using that as a platform of expression. What do you think, Louise, on social media and grief? Do you think it's a, a good platform to be using? I think so. I think anything that helps people express how they are feeling and to find people around them who are going through something similar is is really helpful. And it's incredible to see all of these new accounts on Instagram that are popping up. Um, it, it might be quite specific. It might be um, someone who sets up an account because they have lost a sibling and feel that, that they feel quite disenfranchised from the rest of the, the world of grief. Um, because of the nature of their loss and they want to come together with other people who are going through something similar. Um, I know when I had a really messy breakup a few years ago, I had a secret Instagram account where I just poured out my heartbreak um, because I think my friends got so bored of listening to it. It just felt like something I had to do, post, you know, six things a day about you know, just how miserable and awful it was and how my heart was just completely shattered. And it really helped. Just anything that means I wasn't carrying it around inside me and was finding a way to express it um, is really important. Um, and we see that communities are coming together. People are finding other people who have gone through something similar and finding support that they might not be able to get from their, um, from their the community around them in real life. Yeah, and sometimes it can be much easier to talk to strangers than the people you know best, right? Absolutely. And also the people that you know best are going through, they have lost, they've most probably lost somebody too, the person that you're grieving. And people all grieve very differently. So it can be very difficult to have an open conversation with someone who's also experiencing the same loss. And Anna, when you work, you work with families as a whole, right? Often. Yeah, some so not always, but yes, generally, um, I'm usually called in from diagnosis, and I support the person who is unwell, and I support their family, and then I continue afterwards, and I do grief support after they've died. I also sometimes support their friends. Everything. Yeah, it. it Every, every person is an individual. Everyone has different needs. Every sort of situation requires something different and you have to work incredibly flexibly and on a needs-based 
way because you just you can't say this is what I do for everybody because it's always completely different Mm. I'd love to talk a little bit more both of your thoughts a little bit more around this idea of grief because I know that um, a lot of your book is dedicated to it and you subscribe to a different model maybe than a lot of people have heard of so a lot of people when they think of grief hear of the five stages and how um essentially how reductive and <laughs> unhelpful those can often be so do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about your um understanding of grief through your work and and through is it lois Lois's model that you yes look yes I'll let Anna um speak about um about Lois but just to say that I think we we wrote in the book there were no such there were no five stages of grief and underlined it and put it in bold with an exclamation mark on the end because so many people think that there are five stages and that um they're linear and that you somehow smoothly move through them and providing you're in one stage you'll be in the next one in a couple of weeks and it's just not how it works from my experience of working with grieving people and and my experiences are as a funeral director so it's usually in the immediate aftermath of someone dying grief does not work like that at all um the five stages were written by elizabeth um, kubler ross to actually deal to look at how people deal with the end of their own lives it was still a dying as opposed to grief um and I find that people can give themselves a really hard time over not following the stages so so often immediately after someone has died um people might not feel anything they might be completely numb detached it doesn't feel real and just as we get to the funeral people kind of start to frost a bit and it starts to become very real to them um and some people can feel really awful about they're not crying all the time they actually feel kind of okay they're managing to get on with their lives other people can't do anything they can't even get out of bed they can't string a sentence together they can't remember what day it is it's a very different experience um, for everyone and I think what we wanted to get across was just how varied people's experiences are and whatever you're going through it's absolutely fine and completely normal um and um Lois is one of Anna's friends and um and her model of grief which I'll pass over to Anna to talk about I think is a a much more useful one than thinking about grief as something that we need to get over yeah so uh, Lois was for I guess a grief academic uh, she worked Um, in grief for years and years and years and wrote lots of incredible books about it and her model was called growing around grief and it's the idea that our grief for somebody doesn't get any smaller over the years it doesn't change but what happens is that our life grows around it and sort of cushions it but she believed that you could feel that same sort of agony of initial grief 20 years later Um, and it's not grief is absolutely not something to get over it's something to learn to live with she also described grief as being as unique as a fingerprint everybody experiences it differently which I think is a really beautiful way of putting it and having worked in this field for so long I've never met anyone who has grieved in the same way Mm. And as you um, said before, as well, Louise, when, since when you were talking about your secret Instagram account, of course, we're talking about the grief from death, but there are so many other ways in which we experience grief in our life, both big and small. 
absolutely grief doesn't just belong to death I think grief belongs to any kind of change that we aren't necessarily welcoming into our lives so whether that's um, the end of a relationship which is a big one for me or a job changing or having to move somewhere we don't want to move or um, losing our our work and our livelihood we've seen so much grief um, related to so many different things over the last year I think and the idea that yeah, grief isn't just this thing that we feel when someone has died. It's something that can affect us every single day in, in different forms and in different shades. It's not always really deep and dark and awful and soul-destroying. Sometimes it's much more of a light grief um, that's much easier to carry. But I think it's really important to recognise that we can grieve all sorts of losses. Mm. Absolutely. And also, even working in these areas as you do and you have for so long, you're also not immune to grief. There's not such a thing as it being immune to grief or the experience just because you've got the knowledge about it or the... No, I think the the only thing that I guess... <laughs> I'm not even sure that it's an advantage, but the only the only different thing is that we we both know that grief is unique and we both know that it's completely unpredictable and so we're often able to allow ourselves to feel what we're feeling without fighting it but you know even then even saying all of that you don't necessarily know that how you're feeling is attributed to the fact that you're grieving something while you're while you're in it when you first started working in this area did you find it more challenging less challenging is that kind of like me asking how long is a piece of string that it's just different sort of yes I think the difference now is that I know what my triggers are and the situations that I'm going to find really upsetting personally and what I've discovered over the years is that it's not always the situations I think are going to be difficult um, because on the surface they look very difficult, you know, sort of really awful situations where someone has died suddenly or very young or a child or baby has died. Um, I tend to be much better at dealing with those actually than the, no quite the more normal situations um, where, I don't know, there's maybe a, a loving family and the matriarch of the family has died age 90 um, and everyone is incredibly supportive and together and a real family unit. I tend to find those situations much more triggering than um, I'm much more at home with sort of the tragedies and the darkness of my job. And, and I think a really important part of it and something that I get across to my team as well is that we are aware of what our triggers are and the bits that we find really difficult so that we can support each other through them or potentially say, okay, this situation has come in. I don't think I'm the best person to deal with this. Would one of you mind taking over for me? That kind of thing. Um, it would be doing my job a disservice I think if I became immune to it if I could just handle all of this as though it never affects me it does affect me it's a lot to carry um and I think part of part of the issues with the funeral industry as a whole is that there are is no support mechanisms in place um people are just sort of left to deal with the stuff and lots of awful situations and they're not held themselves and I think for a lot of people the only way to do that is to shut down and be quite cold um I know when I've worked for other funeral directors before I I launched my own company the um amount 
of alcohol that's consumed, the sort of the racism, the sexism, the swearing, the stupid, horrible jokes that are told is really distressing. And I think it's all a coping mechanism for for dealing with something which is really difficult to deal with unless supported properly. That's really interesting and really heartbreaking as well. I was going to ask whether there was anything, any support structures in place in the same way that, for example, if you're a therapist and you're dealing with very similar issues to those that you guys deal with, very similar um, emotional. And um, and no, um, as a whole, for the funeral industry, there's very little support. It's beginning to become more of a thing now, and particularly over the last year when funeral directors were um, classed as essential workers. Um, it's meant that we're entitled to more support and we've had access to helplines to be able to talk through difficult situations in the same way that an NHS worker um might access that sort of support but as a whole there is very little in place um, to support the funeral profession um it's down to individual companies to put things into place what about and not all of them do what about you Anna in that regard I think it's impossible to do the jobs that we do without support so I have supervision and in fact Lois was my supervisor before she died how do you decompress, both of you, after a, after a heavy day or week or month or whatever it is? How do you... Um, it's <laughs> <laughs> looking very unsure right now. <laughs> um, so there are probably two answers to this question, and one is pre-pandemic. So pre-pandemic for me is to be really important to balance the heaviness and the intensity of the work that I do. Because also being a business owner, not just a funeral director, but being a business owner means that my workload never stops. There's always a spreadsheet or something the accountant wants or something to sign or look over that I have to do. So a really important thing for me was making sure I set set aside time to have fun. And I noticed my mental health would decrease um big time if I didn't do that um and I would start sort of leaking out all of this stuff I would stop being quite short with my team and feeling really frustrated whenever they asked me anything all of those warning signs that I just wasn't having any time for myself or doing anything fun um so I used to have things that I knew I enjoyed, whether it was going climbing with my friend Laura, whether it was going for a walk in the park or going to this incredible place called Eat Tokyo in um, Soho that does the most amazing Japanese food. Um, just things that I enjoy doing that are far away from the work that I do. It was really important to put those things in place. And then in the last year, um, I haven't been able to do many of those things because everything is in lockdown and we're living with restrictions. And also the intensity of the work has increased. We've been supporting so many people with funerals pretty much nonstop um, since this started. Um, probably back in February last year is when it became really intense. Um, and there hasn't been the opportunity to set aside time for fun. And fun has had to be redefined. Fun is now saying, okay, on a Saturday night, I'm going to have a Zoom call with four friends and we're all going to sit there and have dinner at the screen because that is pretty much all we can do. Um, One important thing I have done in the last year, which has really kept me going, is going for um, a walk um, with a friend of mine um, whose office was based nearby to where I live and and she was able to go into work several days a week so after work we would walk by the river and 
get a coffee and just talk. And that was my moment of sanity. That was a thing that I really prioritized and was as close to having a fun time <laughs> as I've been able to get during the last year. But it has been a real challenge. And having a really supportive team as well has helped because we're all in the same position. We're all overwhelmed with work. Um, we're all struggling with the intensity of the conversations that we're having with the people that we're working with. Um, ultimately, we're all stuck at home um, and able to see people and do the things that we need to do to decompress. Mm. Anna? Um, <laughs> walking is really good. Like I said, I walk my dog every day. Um, every Wednesday night, we have a food challenge where we make four different dishes <laughs> of the same cuisine. Um, and then we order something as well from the same cuisine and we mark it out of 10. <laughs> and I've really found that has been, um, it's been fun and it's been silly and it's been frustrating when the dishes don't come out how you want them to or someone else's tastes better than mine, which is usually the case. Um, but yeah, I, Louise is right. Every fun has been redefined. You know, it's nothing is the same. Um, can't go to the cinema, can't, you know, do all of the things that you would. It would be a real treat to go to the cinema. And I would get lost in two hours of, you know, watching something that was completely unrelated to life. Um, and, and it's almost impossible to do that now. But, I, you know, I think having kids it's impossible not to have fun you know they're they like they dance all the time and make me dance too and you know things that you feel quite petulant about doing end up being kind of really quite therapeutic so yeah it's just whatever you can do really at the moment just to have a moment away from all of the difficult moments of joy yeah and I think as long as I think we try to have a moment of joy every day it feels really important you know even if that I'm I'm really strict about dinner we always have dinner at the table we always ask each other how was your day what did you do they say a good thing about their day and a bad thing about their day and we talk about it and that feels really really important I hate nothing more than an afternoon lost to Googling, particularly when it's for products or methods to support my well-being. So I'm thrilled that this episode of Priorities is sponsored by Healthy Living Store, the simple online one-stop shop for quality wellness products and expert advice. Their aim is to make living healthy simple, and they take a full 360-degree approach to health, incorporating nutrition, movement, mental health, and sleep to help support even those who are normally pretty skeptical of well-being. I'm a big fan of the fatigue fix tincture, and I'm also currently eyeing up a new ergonomic home office chair as well. Healthy Living Store are kindly offering any listener £10 off their first order with £35 minimum spend. You simply need to use the code LILY10. Check them out on www.healthylivingstore.co. That's healthylivingstore.co with the code LILY10. So Louise, we talked about a moment in your life when your priorities changed in an instant and how you wrote that email and sent it immediately before you could change your mind. Anna, what about you? I know there's been quite a big point in your life where, where your whole life shifted. Um, yeah, um, there have been several of those. I got pregnant at university 
and had my daughter on my own, my eldest daughter on my own. And I think that was one of the biggest shifts in priority going from a student to a mum, student to single mum. Yeah, it was... uh, Well, you have to ask her. It's been an interesting journey, that's for sure. How old is she now? She's 22 and studying at London College of Fashion. Um, And yeah, it's amazing. It's it's been an amazing journey. Is it something that you think about in terms of the amount of responsibility or change that you had at that age? I I think if I'd had the internet, I would have felt very different about it, but it was 22 years ago. And um, if I'd maybe had the opportunity to Google what it might have been like, (laughs) I I don't know what I would have done. I think not having any idea what I was letting myself in for. I'm also incredibly stubborn and everyone said, you can't possibly do that on your own. And I thought, well, yeah, I can actually. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't really have, I don't really have any articulate words for it other than I'm hugely grateful to her. I've never been an adult without being a mother. And that is a very strange thing when I think about that. And we talk about it a lot. Um, that's very strange, but obviously I can't imagine a life with, without her, without all of them really. Mm. Um, I also read in your book you talk about the um, being ill yourself and I found that a really really useful point in the book I think I've told Louise before you joined um, in terms of your advice for how to speak to someone who's unwell Mm. would you be happy to share that story um, yeah, you might have to remind me which specific which specific bit it is. But yes, I think um, if you're talking about the, I wrote a list about things that I wished I'd been able to ask people to do and not do. Yeah. Is, is that the bit? Yeah, as well as just explaining what happened to you. Um, so uh, on February the 15th, <laughs> 2015 I collapsed my daughters are all born within a week of each other in February and every year we would have a big sort of joint birthday for the three of them and I collapsed at their birthday party and was taken to Lewisham A&E and they said that I was too poorly for there so I got put in an ambulance and sent to King's and ultimately, I lost my left side, and I'm left-handed, so it's my dominant side, and I lost my ability to speak. Um, so yeah, I've spent a long time recovering, and I still <clears throat> go to the hospital quite a lot. Um, uh, I still have treatment. I will have it for the rest of my life. There are months and months and months where I don't even really notice it and then um, if I don't look after myself if I work too hard and I don't sleep enough then it really it really does impact it's very strange talking about it I I 
I wrote I wrote it in the book and I, I wrote about it in huge detail and then we edited most of the detail out um, because actually ultimately the most important bit for me to get across was understanding what it's like to be a patient what it's like to be unwell and be in that kind of hamster wheel of appointments and operations but also I just wanted I don't feel like people who are unwell very often have a voice to say what they need and often things are done to them without someone saying would this be okay or would you like this or what would you like and so it felt sort of the ins and outs of me being ill didn't really matter what mattered was trying to get across how important it is to ask somebody what they need or how they want something to be what would make them more comfortable did you feel like it shifted your understanding of all of that it completely shifted my understanding and it changed the way I work completely. I think I always prided myself on being really empathetic and sort of not understanding what somebody was going through because you can never understand what somebody is going through. Um, but having an idea of how something might feel and I realised I absolutely didn't. And I think we totally disenfranchise people who were unwell. You know, just all of the things that I had sort of experienced with my clients were happening to me. I had doctors standing over me, talking to my brother, telling him what was going on and not telling me. Talking about me as an illness, talking about me as a, a bed number in a ward, as opposed to, you know, Anna. And I found it really, really difficult. It was almost like I, I ceased to exist. And because I couldn't talk, um, I couldn't shout, sort of, you know, I'm here. Can you please talk to me? Well, it's so disempowering to be treated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very much so. And I wish I could say that it's got better. I don't think it has. I think it's very dependent on what doctor you have, what part of their shift they're on. You know, I think it really, really depends. And I don't think it should. I think absolutely everybody should be treated as a human being and as themselves and spoken to, not spoken about. I think that's um, incredibly simple and incredibly important advice. Well, there's, there was an amazing doctor called Kate Granger and she, after she'd completed her studies and she was working, I believe she was working in geriatrics, she got very, very unwell herself. She was diagnosed with quite a rare cancer and she realised how she was being treated as a patient and she set up a movement called Hello My Name Is to encourage every medical professional to introduce themselves, to say, you know, this is my name, what's your name? So that you could begin to have a kind of dialogue and feel like you were on the same kind of level playing field rather than this kind of hierarchical doctor-patient relationship. Um, and she really changed how medical professionals saw illness and saw people who were ill. And I, I think she did an amazing job. And it's still, you know, if you go into hospitals, you'll you'll see the badges that say, hello, my name is. Yeah, I read about her in the book. Mm -hmm. It does make such a difference as well, that the way in which 
medical professionals talk to you? Such a difference. Being ill is terrifying and you put your life in their hands. You know, these are people who are trained to help you and to make you better. Um, and you don't know how to do that. And I think I don't I don't think people realise how vulnerable you feel when you're very ill and what an act of trust it is to put your life in their hands. Mm-hmm. OK, so what would be your top three things not to say? do to someone who is very unwell I think talking over them about them but over them to somebody is the is an absolute no-no I think everything should be addressed to the person who is unwell and I also found when you're lying in a hospital bed I found it really distressing having medical teams looming over me it made such a difference when they sat down there was something really oppressive about having all of these people standing up peering down at you and that felt just something really simple like them sitting on the bed or pulling up a chair and sitting on it so that they could actually look at me and talk to me that really mattered and I think the other thing is listening and taking a bit of time and I know how busy they are and I do appreciate that often it's much easier said than done but feeling that they have time for you, that your life matters, I think that that can make a huge difference. Mm. Louisa, I'll pose a slightly similar question to you, but um, what are the things we shouldn't say to people who have lost someone or who's grieving? What, what's Because I think often people don't know what to say or how to approach someone's grief or pain. And so often they avoid it altogether or go in all guns blazing. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. What's your advice to people who just don't really know what to do? I've become really cautious about this actually because um, someone checked me a few weeks ago on what I was saying was helpful and what wasn't helpful because a lot of the time it depends on someone's exact um, context, their beliefs, um, if they subscribe to any religions, their beliefs in the afterlife. So from, from my perspective, and I'm not religious, um, I don't find it helpful to, when someone says, oh, they're in a better place. However, the person that was um, talking to me about this actually finds it really helpful because her mother had um, a belief in the afterlife and hearing that she's now out of pain and all the suffering she went through in her final illness and the idea that she's in a nicer place actually is really helpful to her. So I think we have to be really cautious on um, what's helpful and what isn't. Um, And I'd say that Bearing that in mind, and I think it's really tricky in um, in Britain in particular, because we all have so many different beliefs, we have so many different values, we don't have that much of a strong community, really, um, well, most of us don't. Um, so we've lost that ability just to be able to fit into a sort of expectation of what's helpful and what isn't. And we have to sort of look at every situation and figure out what, what does this person need, what would be helpful for me to say to them. Um, and one huge thing is just do not cross the road if you see your neighbor and they're approaching you and you know that they have gone through something awful their husband has died whatever it is do not cross the road and ignore them um, because you don't know what to say Um, 
I think just being able to sit with people's pain and discomfort and not try to say all of these platitudes and things to make them feel better, but just to face it head on and say, I'm so sorry to hear the news about your husband. I always thought he had a lovely smile and it was so nice that he said hello to me every day and he always remembered the name of my dog. Something like that. Um, It's not going to remind the person that you're speaking to that their husband has died because they won't have forgotten and they're carrying that around and to feel seen in their loss I think is really important so regardless of whatever you say just say something I think that's the the main the main message don't shy away from it mm-hmm. um, I think yeah, the 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 Absolutely, that's exactly right. But also, I think don't ever say to somebody, I know exactly how you feel, and then compare their loss to your cat dying last week or something. I think it's really important that you don't ever compare losses or suggest that you know exactly what someone's going through because you don't. Yeah, and as you said before, Anna, as well, about Um, with medical professionals that actual listening so that you're listening to someone's experience and um, in a really genuine way so you're not waiting to talk about your own stuff but rather genuinely holding space for them and being available to them yeah we uh, doulas often call it bearing witness to as well and just as Louise said sitting with somebody's pain you can't fix it. You can't make it better. You can't mend anything. But what you can do is be there and bear witness to it and sit with them and show them that you can help them bear the weight of it, even if that's just for a moment. I think we'll leave it there, guys. Thank you so much. There's so many brilliant insights. It's really nice to hear about both of your pathways to where you are now. And thank you for all the really helpful advice that I'm sure lots of people are going to benefit from. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us on your podcast. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review, as this helps other people find it. Need a little incentive? Every month, I offer one free six-month membership to my online studio, Mindful Moment. All you have to do is hit subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and then email a screenshot of your review to podcast at lilysilverton.com for a chance to win. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.